It is a joy to be uh, preaching again, but I will say that I have been very blessed to be sitting under the preaching pastor Mark and Enrico. Amen? These are two men who we know love the Word of God and love us so much, and we're blessed by them. I think also of all our Sunday school teachers and Bible study leaders, our salt group leaders, etc., who love God's Word and love sharing it, studying it, learning from it, depending upon it together. But I will, I will also say sincerely that after a while, a preacher starts to, to grow itchy sitting in the pew, and the desire to preach gets hotter and hotter until he feels like he's going to explode. You have no idea how much I am looking forward to walking through the book of 2 Corinthians with you over the next few months. I've titled our study, Finding Real Power. Now, that may have a heroic sound to it, but as many of you know so well, the image of a powerful Christian is vastly different than what the emperors of Rome and Marvel Comics have sought to portray. During Jesus' time on earth, Israel as a whole didn't even see the power of God standing right before them. Even though they had been suffering and, and waiting hundreds of years for Messiah to come, they had no idea that the saving power of God was lying in that manger in Bethlehem. They were so misguided they crucified Him. But you can't stop real power. Three days later would prove that it was death that had actually been conquered not the God-man Jesus. That weak man on the cross, weak man, had all the power of the creator of the universe within him. And the mind-blowing reality is that all of the children of God have the power of God at their fingertips as well. The power not to do what we want, not even to do what we think we necessarily need to do, but the power to perform and endure and fulfill the perfect will of God for their lives. And ultimately, we get to experience the power to be resurrected and the power to reign on high with Christ forever. Do we think about that power very often? Turn with me in your Bibles for just a moment to chapter 12 of 2 Corinthians, chapter 12. Many would agree that this is the text that captures so well the heart cry of this entire epistle. And it's this passage that inspires the title for our study, Finding Real Power. By way of introduction to the book, look at verses 7 through 10 with me of chapter 12. The Apostle Paul under the divine guidance and inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says in verse 7, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, he's referring to the revelations he received directly from Jesus Christ. He says, because of the surpassing greatness of those revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me to keep me from exalting myself. 
Concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me, and he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. And what was Paul's response? Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. We easily could have titled this study, Finding Real Weakness. But people rarely sign up for those kind of sermons here, you know what I mean? Of course, weakness in itself is just weakness. We have to go beyond a humble view of ourselves to a very, very high view of God. One without the other is an incorrect view at best. Do you understand this? It's borderline heresy to have one without the other. That would be like saying, yes, God is all-powerful, but I can figure this out for myself. I need to take control of my situation. I can handle this. The same is true for weakness. Knowing that we are weak, but then failing to trust in the power of God is also faulty thinking and living. A weak person with a weak God is of no advantage. I'll be honest with you. It's easy to read these verses and nod my head but I don't know it all. This power of God in my weakness has a lot of mystery left to it. How to factor in my responsibility and my stewardship and effort with the sovereign power of God is sometimes very hard to discern. But God does not sit in heaven hoping to avoid and trick us. He is there to be found. He longs to reveal himself to us in greater and greater ways. All of church history and even the Old Testament remind us that God is going to reveal himself through his word, through his spirit, through the way he moves in our lives. As we study through 2 Corinthians, we rest assured that the word will not return void. I pray that this study of 2 Corinthians will take every one of us to a higher plane of spiritual strength and understanding and submission, a higher plane of personal weakness, and a higher plane of joy and confidence in Christ, regardless of our circumstances. 2 Corinthians is going to touch on all of these things and so much more. As is the case with all of the epistles, this book is a God-given manual on how to live the God-glorifying, Christ-exalting Christian life. It lays out in very clear terms many of the beliefs, attitudes, and behaviors of a person who says, I am a Christian. There is real power in these verses that we are going to study. 
And so I ask you and I ask myself at the start of this series, do you believe in the power of God? The power that you need right now to trust Him and to obey His word. The two cannot be separated. As we start this study, I want to encourage all of us to adopt this prayer or something like this. I believe, Lord. I may not understand. I may not even have a vision of the path forward. I may not even see the way out. But I believe in you and in your power. I believe in your word and what your spirit can do in my life right now. Christian friend, who else do we have to go to? Who or what else could we possibly need when we have the omnipotent God of the universe as our own loving Father? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your omnipotence is amazing. As we read through the pages of Scripture and see what you did in creation and for the nation of Israel, in spite of their faithfulness to you, you were faithful. You were all-powerful. You were just. You were merciful. You were kind. And then we think about the power of God revealed through the life of Jesus Christ. Those amazing few decades where Jesus, God in the form of man, turned the world upside down, changed the course of history, fulfilled the words of the prophets. And that power still exists today. Oh, God, give us the grace to believe, to trust, to obey. We look forward to seeing what you will do, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, just FYI, I've placed two short videos about the city of ancient Corinth on the homepage of our community site. So at some point this week, sign in and scroll down. One of the videos is new to us, and the other is that fantastic tour of Corinth that I shared with you about a year ago when we studied 1 Corinthians. How many of you saw that 44-minute video? That was one of the best documentaries on an ancient city I've ever seen. It was done by a church in, in um, New York City. You will feel like you have been there during Paul's time after you watch that. Now, just so I have a, a feel for our group, how many of you were here a year ago? We started this last May when we studied through the book of 1 Corinthians. How many were here at that time? Okay, well over half of us. That's wonderful. Well, since I gave a more detailed historical overview of ancient Corinth last spring, I'm not going to repeat that today. Again, you can see those videos on the community, and if you'd like to explore our First Corinthians study, you can find that on the live stream again, May of last year. But today we come to 2 Corinthians. Paul has visited the church of Corinth at least twice already. He has written to them multiple times. We only have two records of the letters, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, but we know that he wrote to them more times than that. These two letters, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, were written about a year apart from each other. So there's the space of the follow-up to the 1st Corinthians uh, series. And Paul is now following up and adding to what he taught and addressed in the church of Corinth prior. 
And another big part of this, the purpose of the second Corinthian letter is that he was seriously attacked. His apostleship was undermined. We saw this just recently in our first Thessalonians study. Same issue. People going after his authority to speak on behalf of Jesus Christ. I mean, that's no claim, no small claim in the first place. But he was slandered, and many others were coming along trying to assume that kind of authority. We'll see later in the book, he mocks them as being super apostles. The challenge in Corinth is that so many of the believers bought into what these others were saying. They started to lose their trust, not, not, not primarily in Paul, but in what Paul was teaching and preaching. They were starting to subvert the gospel. Paul's relationship with the Corinthian believers had been stressful at times, to say the least. Matter of fact, one of the excellent undercurrent teachings and lessons of both these two epistles lies in Paul's example of faithfulness and persistent love with other believers when it's not easy. We'll see this played out as we study through the book. But today we're going to kick off our, our sermon series, this study series, with what Paul used to kick off the entire book. And that is the big picture purposes of suffering and divine comfort. It wasn't popular to be a Christian in those few years after Jesus was crucified. And we know well that it's getting far, and far less popular to be a Christian in America. There are powerful life truths for us today in these words that we're going to study. If we know why we're suffering, it makes suffering not just bearable, but almost desirable. We'll explain that. If you've watched the NBA Finals this past month, you know these athletes have for years put themselves through incredible pain and exhaustion, especially Toronto. For decades, they never made it to the championship, and this year, they made it and they won. The question is, why would they put themselves through that level of intense pain and effort and work, ups and downs? Is it because they like pain? No. We know well that it's because they see a prize that only comes through pain. Yeah, they're sights set on the championship. And we recognize in all of life that purpose makes all the difference in perspective. This is so true for believers in our perspective of suffering and comfort. So without further ado, let's turn back to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. We're going to study verses 1 through 11 today. This is our text and follow along as I read chapter 1, verse 1 of 2 Corinthians. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God which is at Corinth, with all the saints who are throughout Achaia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction 
with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. But if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. Or if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which is effective in the patient enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer. And our hope for you is firmly grounded, knowing that as you are sharers of our sufferings, so also you are sharers of our comfort. For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves, so that we would not trust in ourselves but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a peril of death and will deliver us. He on whom we have set our hope and he will yet deliver us. You also joining in helping us through your prayers so that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the favor bestowed upon us through the prayers of many. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we once again ask that you would open our eyes as only your Spirit can do. Reveal your truth to us. Lord, we know full well that we are not strong. The circumstances of this life are so far beyond our control. But our hope is firmly grounded and we know that you have the power and that your will for every one of our lives is good and perfect and glorifying to you. So Lord, speak to us now, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's jump right into our study. Verse one, again, it says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth with all the saints who are throughout Achaia, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Very quickly, right out the gate here, Paul is rightfully claiming his God-given apostolic commission. It is not by chance that he has introduced himself as an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. More on that later in the book. Timothy, we see, is also with him at this time. They're in Macedonia writing to Corinth. Paul soon plans to go to Corinth, but he is sending this letter in advance because things are that bad. And it's worth noting that Paul is not just writing to the Corinthian church. His intent is that these truths be taught beyond this one church to all the churches throughout the province of Achaia. That speaks somewhat to the relevance of these truths to us. These are big-time truths. We also see that Paul prays here that the believers would be blessed with the grace and peace of God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, the deity of Christ is being very, very intentionally proclaimed right here. Many would say that Jesus was not the Messiah. We know this if, we've, if you've done any early church history. Again, it was not popular to be a follower of Christ because so many of the Jews, the more majority of the Jews, not to mention 
the, the, the Gentiles refused to believe that Christ was the Messiah. So we see here that Paul acknowledges that Jesus Christ is also the source of grace. That is divine power and peace right along with the Father. Paul is teaching that Jesus was the Son of God. Verse 3. This is where we'll spend the majority of our time now, these remaining verses. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. If you're taking notes, we're going to cover this morning 11 divine comfort truths. Point number one, you can write one in your notes, but leave it blank because we're going to come back to it in about 20 minutes. Pay attention to see if you can figure out what point number one is. Pop quiz in about 20 minutes. So let's actually start with point two. We find in these verses the comforter's credentials. If we read too quickly and don't pause to soak in the riches of every phrase, we miss the fact that Paul just described God in three very specific ways. Number uh, Letter A, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. When was the last time you addressed Jesus as, or is, when was the last time you addressed the Father as being the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ? That's an interesting title. Paul immediately repeats the theology of his opening greeting by affirming that the God that Paul is about to speak about is the God and Father of Messiah. The Jews were placing their faith, those who believed, they were placing all of their faith in Jesus Christ the Messiah for forgiveness of sin and the hope of eternal life. That, that's exactly what we're trusting in Him for. And Paul exalts the Father, think about this, by reminding the believers that God is the Father of the Savior of the world. In a sense, if you thought Messiah was magnificent, try measuring the magnificence of the one who is the head over Messiah. Father God. Again, Paul is teaching us a high view of God. B, we see that he is the father of mercies. Mercy is, that, is the compassion and gentle, loving favor of God upon sinners. Specifically upon sinners. People who do not deserve His kindness. People who actually deserve judgment. That's what mercy is. In Ephesians 2, 4 says, God is rich in mercy. Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, described the mercy of God as being great. Paul extends the measure of God's mercy when here he says, God is the Father of mercies, the head, the supreme overseer, the procreator. Mercy originates with Him and from Him. If you're looking for relief and compassion and help in time of need, who better to go to than the Father of mercies? Third, Paul describes God as the God of all comfort. Again, all comfort originates from Him. 
He is the ultimate source. He is the overseer and sovereign guide of all comfort. What an incredible thought. These very definitions of God qualify Him to comfort us. That's what Paul is seeking to accomplish here. And these three definitions in particular also prompt a soul-searching question for us. How well do you and I describe God when we think of Him and pray to Him and share Him with others? My concern is we often do not know God well enough to describe Him well. The inability to describe Him well to others isn't the concern so much as it's the fact that we don't know Him well enough in the first place. How big is the God that you worship? How well do I know the God of the universe? If I said to a fellow, tell me about your wife, and all he could say is, well, her, her name is such and such, and she's about 30 years old, maybe 31, 32, somewhere in there, um, medium tall, likes to go shopping, and yeah, what else do you want to know about her? Well, let's just say we would all highly suspect his relationship with his wife. There are many men in this room who, if I asked them to describe their wife, they would immediately smile and give a lengthy, glowing description of all the things about their wife that makes their wife so beautiful to them. Back to God. When you and I pray, does our description and acknowledgement of God go deeper than, dear Lord? To use Paul as an example, would you, I, you and I even think to pray something like this? Heavenly Father, I worship you because you are the Father of my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you for sharing your Son with me. Thank you for sacrificing your only Son for my salvation when I was a sinner. That is the greatest comfort I could ever hope for. And Lord God, you are the Father of mercies. Only a merciful God would bother to show comfort, again, especially to sinners. You're comforting. And you are the Father of mercy. The sovereign overseer, the source of all the loving and compassion I could ever need, even when I don't deserve it. And you're not just God to me. You're the God of comfort. And you're not just the God who comforts, you're the God of all comfort. There is no need beyond your ability to comfort. Lord, there is no care, no consolation outside of you and your goodness. This world has nothing to offer me. You are the God of all comfort. And it's to you who I pray. Do our hearts spontaneously pray like that? As I've read and meditated on this chapter for some time now, I've come to really love and appreciate how affectionately and personally and meaningfully Paul worships God. 
Paul has raised the bar for us in terms of praying the attributes of God as a part of our worship. But to pray them, we have to know them and believe them in the first place. Verse 4. What, what a wealth we find in what we would have otherwise considered just some introductory comments, isn't it? The Word of God is so amazing. Verse 4, here we see that Paul specifically mentions these three aspects of God because he is directing our thoughts toward what he's going to say next. It is this God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort, verse 4, who comforts us in all our affliction. Point number three, here we find the extent of comfort. Who comforts you and me when we need it most? Who comforts us when we are desperate for consolation? Is it this amazing God that we look to? When we recognize God for who He is, when we see Him like a diamond and all of its brilliant facets, it makes us, makes us ask, why would I look to anyone or anything else so strongly for comfort? Why that addiction? Why TV? Why food? Why porn? When I'm suffering, why do I pity myself as though that will somehow lift my spirits and give relief to my sadness? When a person hits hard times, when we hit rock bottom, who or what they look to for comfort reveals nearly everything about their faith. So who comforts you and me when we're desperate for comfort? To answer that from another angle based on verse 3, is it just God? Or is it this wonderful person in heaven and in us with whom we have a meaningful and affectionate relationship. Paul expounds and magnifies these qualities of God to give weight to what God does. It is this great God who comforts us in all our affliction. And he doesn't just impersonally comfort the world or them. Paul says he comforts us. So many religions point to a God being who has absolutely no personal relationship with them, unlike the God who comforts us, me, you. And Paul expounds further, he comforts us in all our affliction. There's the extent of God's comfort. When we hit the worst of our afflictions, the deepest of our sorrows, the most exhausting of our trials, we must by faith remind ourselves that we will find the God of all comfort there also. Because as verse 4 teaches us, His comfort knows no limit. No suffering is too small or too big, too short or too long. God comforts us in how much of our affliction? All. Who or what else in this world can even come close to making such a claim? There is no tangible thing, no hobby, no friend, not even any spouse or family member who can claim to provide total, complete comfort. We see the extent of the all in both verses 3 and 4. 
where it speaks not only to the number of situations that God can comfort us in, but the totality of comfort in each situation. God doesn't just comfort some of our sorrows, He comforts all of them. And He doesn't just comfort part way in each one, He comforts all the way. His comfort is all. It is complete, it is perfect. It is perfected in us. Now, of course, it may not come in the way we expect. It may not come in the time we expect, but that's because we are not God. I have to remind myself that often. If I was God, I'd be doing things exactly the way they're happening right now. But I'm not, and that's why I don't always understand. In fact, that's why I rarely understand. Comfort will come in the way and time that God knows is best, and it will come. We studied this recently in James uh, a little while back. You know the passage well, James 1.3. The testing of your faith, and it's not a test if it's not happening, so the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, perfect and complete, lacking in nothing, talking about the maturing process. We understand this well. God is accomplishing good in our afflictions. If we let Him and if we run to His grace, I don't believe there's a one of us who does not at times ask or have the tendency to ask, what good could God possibly bring from this much suffering? This deep of hurt that I'm experiencing right now. Friend, in the simplest of terms, don't let your faith give up. Remind yourself that Jesus, think about this, Jesus very well could have asked the same thing when they drove the first nail into his hand. Father, what good could possibly come from this? I asked that you might let this go by, but not my will yours be done. Jesus could have asked, and perhaps he did, Lord God, Father, what good will you bring? And the answer would soon come back. Mankind will experience the love of God like never before. I will accomplish the salvation of mankind, all those who trust me. I will accomplish victory over death, freedom from the power of sin, the hope of eternal life. This is just the beginning of the list of the good I will do. Yes, let us ask, what good could possibly come from my sorrows? And let us answer, God only knows the great things He will do. I trust Him. As a final note on this phrase, who comforts us in all our affliction, forgive me for stating the obvious, but sometimes the obvious is not so obvious. God comforts us in our affliction. Have you ever noticed how easy it is to provide, to provide comfort when it's not really needed? For example, I'm thinking of comfort food. We didn't really need that bowl of ice cream, let alone the second scoop. 
but we sure enjoyed it. Take that to the meaningful level. Have you noticed that sometimes those who we thought were our friends were nowhere to be found when we needed comfort most? Maybe they were too busy. God will never be too busy. Maybe they were honestly unaware. God will never be ignorant. Maybe they honestly didn't know what to say. God will always have the perfect word for you. And we'll find it right here. The God and Father of all comfort ministers to us in our affliction. When we need it most. Aren't you grateful for that? He's not just there in the easy good times. Now everything that we've studied so far is pointing to the next phrase. All arrows in the text are pointing at these next two words in verse 4. So that. Now we study this in 1 Thessalonians, right? The so that's should grab our attention. The alarm should sound when we're reading through text and come across a so that or for this reason or therefore, etc. The so that means this is the goal, this is the purpose, the result, this is what it's all about. Here's why the prior truths are important. So that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. This brings us to point number four. We see here the earthly purpose for comfort. Listen closely, friends. God does not comfort us so we can be comfortable. He does not just comfort us, comfort us so we can experience His loving compassion. This is one of the most striking truths I find in these verses. It is one of the most often missed life truths surrounding the issue of suffering and comfort. And that is this. The comfort of God in your deepest moment of suffering is not all about you. Again, the comfort of God in your and my deepest moment of suffering is not all about us. One of the greatest hindrances to experiencing the abundance of divine comfort is self-centeredness in sorrow, self-centeredness in recovery, self-centeredness in healing. Have you ever thought the Bible didn't offer much good counsel? Read deeper, right? This is some of the, some of the staggering counseling a person can receive. God doesn't just comfort you and me so we can be happy. It's so we can minister to others. Tell me if I'm misreading this text. He comforts us in all our affliction so that we won't have pain anymore. We can be happy again. Is that what it says? That's not what it says. So that, here is the purpose for our comfort, so that we will be able to comfort others. Here is the life-changing application in this verse. When we suffer, it is biblical to immediately pray, Lord, comfort me so I can share your amazing comfort with others who need it. Here's why this is so powerful. There is an incredible reality in this kind of mindset. Enduring 
pressing on, fighting the fight, finishing the course for others is more powerful than hanging in there for self. Think about it. When a loving father finds himself in a tragic accident with his life hanging on the line, does he want to live for himself or does he want to live for his wife and children? Ten out of ten, a loving dad is intensely thinking of his family in that moment. Likewise, God designed you and me to live for our spiritual family. He designed us to live for the ministry of comfort. And it goes beyond the walls of this church. It goes beyond the people of God to the lost. He brings us his comfort so we can share it with others. When we stop and really think about this, God allows us to suffer so that he can prove he is God to us. And when he proves himself, he wants us to take that proof, that divine comfort, that miracle of healing and hope, and share it with others so they too can see that he is God. Are these verses awesome or what? This is why we live. When you and I recognize and grab hold of God's saving and healing purposes for our suffering, that it's not just for us, we now have 100-fold purpose for allowing God to do His perfect work in us through our suffering and the, com the comfort that will accompany it. What do you see this in verse 8? But first, verse 5. For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, pause there, that's the half of the verse you rarely hear sermons on. Everybody wants to get to talk about the next phrase. So also our comfort is abundant through Christ. But going back to the first phrase, Paul gives us a reality check. He speaks the truth boldly for our sake so that we will not be surprised or disappointed or shocked when reality strikes. Eternity is too important to sugarcoat the truth. And the truth is you and I will suffer abundantly if we follow Christ with our whole heart. His sufferings will become our sufferings. Point number five, the need for comfort. Have you watched Mel Gibson's The Passion for the Christ? You know, about 15 years ago? Or better yet, have you read the Gospels recently? I'm so grateful for Pastor Mark's study in the Gospel of Mark. They can walk in the footsteps of Christ, sit at his feet and learn from those words and watch his example. Christ's sufferings are our sufferings in abundance. Brothers and sisters in Christ, let that sink in. Paul doesn't say, and neither does anyone else in Scripture, do everything you can not to suffer as a Christian. He doesn't say the goal, the goal is to avoid affliction and still somehow be a good Christian. Now, neither does it say to go looking for affliction. Don't worry, what do they say? It will find you. Paul simply teaches us a Christian lifestyle truth. The sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance. 
The world will hate those who deny it the satisfaction of the flesh. And oh, how we are seeing that today. Christian friend, are we willing to suffer for Christ? That's the easy question. The real one is, are we willing to suffer abundantly? At what point do we say, that's enough, Lord. I didn't sign up for this. That's a very hard question to answer as an American, living in Gig Harbor and the surrounding area. But we must ask it. Am I suffering for Christ? And if not, why not? When the scripture says it will be mine in abundance, perhaps God is calling us to put more on the line for him, to be willing to suffer for his namesake. Now, I'm not here today to put a guilt trip on me or any of you. We are here to find the truth of the word, whatever it be. Because when we find it, we will be comforted. We will be rich. We will be free. And we find that in these words. Verse 5 does have a second half. So also, our comfort is abundant through Christ. Point number six, here we find the sufficiency of comfort. Someone might, might ask, but why would you want to experience a lot of suffering just so you can experience a lot of comfort? That's a very good question. But it misses the big picture of all these verses. I think we tapped into this principle in our last study in 1 Thessalonians. Maybe it was in Exodus. That it is very important for us to ask the right questions. Dr. Bill covered this in Sunday school this morning. We must ask the right question. Why would you want to experience a lot of suffering just to experience a lot of comfort? Isn't that kind of morbid? I'd have to agree it is morbid, but that is not what the scriptures are teaching here. Nor does it teach that anywhere else. There are better and more accurate questions to ask, like, why did Christ let himself die? That's a good question. That's the bigger picture. Here's another part of the bigger picture. Everyone is going to suffer but not everyone will suffer for Christ. Everyone is going to suffer, but not everyone will receive the comfort of God. These are truths we should ask questions about. And again, let the text speak for itself. We learn from these verses, and the next two especially, that when we suffer abundantly for Christ, we experience comfort abundantly. Again, that is God proving himself to us so that we can share that proof with others. The greater the need, the greater the power. I can't wait to get to chapter 12 so that we can bask in the wisdom and strength of our theme text. When I am weak, then I am strong. Can you imagine being able to say the words that Paul said when, when he said, most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses how many people in the church today are boasting of their problems, eager for the world to know that they are suffering so the world can see when God steps in? Paul says, I would rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content. How many of us are satisfied with our problems? I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, etc. Right here in chapter 1, we see that Paul is preparing us for chapter 12. Verse 6, chapter 1. 
Paul hits the nail again to drive it in even deeper. But if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. Ah, that's a perspective for us right there. Or if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which is effective in the patient enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer. And our hope for you is firmly grounded, knowing that as you are sharers of our sufferings, so also you are sharers of our comfort. My suffering, your salvation. That's a bumper sticker for you right there. Point number seven, here we find the guarantee of comfort. We learn that there is no doubt in the comfort of God. The believer's hope is not wishful thinking. How did Paul describe it? Two ways. Number one, effective, meaning it works. And secondly, firmly grounded. Our hope for you is firmly grounded. We know that if you share in our sufferings, which are Christ's sufferings, you will share in our comfort, which is Christ's comfort, the comfort of God, the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort, guaranteed. What an incredible collection of verses we find here. But we still don't have the big picture. We see that verses 3 to 7 have the reality factor. Yes, life will have suffering, especially if you're a follower of Christ. And these verses have the enduring factor. Yes, we all want to hang in there to the end. And yes, these verses have the sharing factor. We're in this together. But why? The pinnacle, which has been hinted at, that we studied so far, is now revealed further in the next few verses. But before I forget, let's go back to point number one. My one question, pop quiz for you on verses three to seven. What is the primary focus of verses three to seven? Is it A, being comforted, B, sharing God's comfort with others, or C, blessing and worshiping God? Think about that for a moment. I'll give you a hint. It's not A. It's not B. It's worship. If you summarize the text, you realize that verses 3 to 7 are saying, blessed be God for all he does and all the reasons he does them. It's that simple. Everything in these verses is an outflowing of this blessing. Blessed be God. God be worshipped. God be exalted for all he does and for all the reasons he does them. This brings us to point number one in our notes, the heavenly purpose for comfort. One would not expect one of the greatest texts in all of Scripture on suffering and comfort to actually be about worship. But as we grow in our faith and our study and our understanding of the word, we actually find this grand truth to be no surprise at all. Everything is about worship. How does the hymn go? To God be the glory, great things he hath done. What an awesome truth. Back to verse 8. Again, everything in verses 3 to 7 is pointing towards something in these next verses. Paul is going to get very personal, opening up himself here in these next few verses. And he does this because it's easy to just say everything in verses 3 to 7. Would you agree? It's easy to say these verses. It's easy to write them in a card. It's easy to quote them to somebody. Just trust God. He works it all out for good. He's got all the comfort. Keep up the faith, etc. It's easy to say those things. Paul now says, I want you to know I've lived them. I have been there. Verse 8. 
For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia, that we were, three things, burdened excessively, beyond our strength, so that we despaired even of life. Point number eight, here we find the desperation for comfort. Ponder the severity of Paul's statements here. He described his hardship in three ways. We were burdened excessively. That's Paul saying, life was crushing me. You ever been there? Second, he described his trial as beyond our strength. That's Paul saying, I couldn't take it anymore. You ever said that? Third, he said, we despaired even of life. That's Paul saying, I didn't even want to live another day. The thought of waking up tomorrow in this same sorrow and pain was more than I could handle. And Paul caps it off with this statement in verse 9. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves. That's a personal death sentence. Paul and his teammates had already concluded. They had already made a final judgment in their minds. We are going to die. This is the end. It is over. We are going to die, and there is no stopping it. Friends, it doesn't get any lower than that. Why does God allow a person, especially a follower of Christ, an apostle nonetheless, to fall this low in life? You ready for the capstone? The bullseye? the bookend of the worship in these verses, verse 9, so that, so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. If I had to pick one verse that has impacted my life more than any other in the past year, I would pick this verse. God's been teaching me this verse for several months now. Now, I will be very fast to say, I haven't dropped nearly as low as Paul. I haven't dropped nearly as low as some of you. But honestly, I don't want to go that low to learn the lesson if I don't have to. <laughs> Maybe there's no other way. No pain, no gain, right? This brings us to point number nine, the trust in comfort so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. If you walk away from this place and remember only one thing today, perhaps this should be it. To experience the grand prize, to win the championship title, the follower of Christ must do two things very well. They must not trust in themselves, and they must trust in God who raises the dead. It's not enough to trust in God and in self. It's not enough to not trust in self and not trust in God either. That's what we call hopelessness. I don't see any more value in hopelessness than I do pride. They are both dead ends. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not into thine own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him 
and He will direct your paths. That's trust in action right there. And did you notice this stunning description? Again, Paul knows God well. This stunning description that Paul tagged on the end of God's name. We trust in God who raises the dead. I'll be the first to admit, if I was praying, I wouldn't have tagged that on the end of God's name. Again, I ask, how well do you and I know God? In what ways do we define Him? This is a definition that we should let sink deep into our heart, soul, and mind. God who raises the dead. Paul just climaxed the God in God. He's not just one of the leaders. He's just not one of the, the best gods out there. He's not just one of the other good religions. He is the supreme God because he controls life and death. Moment of application. Let me ask the question this way in light of this epic verse. If God is powerful enough to bring the dead back to life, what problem do you and I have that he is not strong enough for? I have to believe that is the point Paul was making in this attribute of God. God, the death killer. God, the resurrector. God, the life giver. If he's powerful enough to raise the dead, he's powerful enough to find you a job. Mend a relationship. Calm your heart. Protect you until he's ready to call you home. Give you courage and even joy through your illness. He can provide for your and my daily bread. You fill in the blank. The bottom line is that no problem is bigger than life and death, and God has those taken care of. That's how big our comforter is. That's why we trust in him and not ourselves. Sometimes in our moments of weakness and suffering, we need to pause and by faith, Worship the God who's bigger and stronger and better than anything that come, can come our way. The God who comforts unlike anything this world can offer. And we're learning from this chapter that He has plans for our lives, a purpose for our lives that is a lot bigger than us getting out of our problem. So many incredible truths in this text. Let's finish with verses 10 and 11. Verse 10 says, who delivered us from so great a peril of death and will deliver us. He on whom we have set our hope and he will yet deliver us. I, I love how Paul repeats himself. He is going to do it. Point number 10, here we find the faithfulness of comfort. <clears throat> it's very important to notice that the past, present, and future tenses used in Scripture. Paul says, I look back and God delivered. I look forward and God will deliver. What does that mean? I can trust him right now. Sometimes we are honestly stuck right in the middle. But if God delivers in the past, and we know he delivers in the future, then we can trust him with the present. Philippians 4, 6 and 7 says, be anxious for nothing. That's a big for nothing. Coming from a man who understood it coming from a Holy Spirit who knew the needs of all believers for all time. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, 
which surpasses all comprehension will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. God help me not to preach another sermon right there. So many truths that we can anchor our lives into in those words. Verse 11. You also, joining and helping us through your prayers so that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the favor bestowed on us through the prayers of many. <clears throat> Here we learn point 11. Prayers part in comfort. This verse in rapid-fire mode emphasizes the importance of the unity in prayer, the support of prayer, the power of prayer, the purpose of prayer, and the answer to prayer. When it comes to suffering and enduring for Christ, a verse like this would almost give us the impression that praying for each other is very important. That's why I love salt groups so much. Because you get to come together and simply pray for each other. We get to hear and share each other's burdens. I love our prayer chain. Let me urge every single person in here to join the church prayer chain on the community site. I'm sure a number of folks may not even realize it's there. There are 57 members in it this morning. I would love to see that number double by tomorrow because there is power in prayer. Prayer is a key ingredient in the miracle of divine comfort. It's beyond my comprehension. I look, it's one of the things I look forward to finding out when I get to heaven. Lord, why did you ever call for prayer? How could my words make any difference in your power? And he's going to have some very good reasons that we will worship him for. We will bless him. But let us not wait till we get to heaven to experience the power of prayer. Well, that's enough for today. I hope your soul is not going home hungry, even though your tummy might. It's been a full sermon, it's been a full morning, but don't you love God's word? I hope you and I walk away from here never viewing our suffering and comfort the same again. May it be at least a little more biblical than it was before. Worship God deeply. Know him. Describe him well in your prayers and conversation with others. Recognize his sovereign power. As the proverb said, acknowledge him. He will direct our path. Let us trust to him, trust him, submit to him, honor him with obedience. He will not fail to comfort. Let's pray. Lord, we, all we could say is you're an amazing God. Here we are sinners, and yet you love to comfort us. You love to show your strength. You love to prove that you are God. We know there are people here suffering today. In some way, we all have suffering in our hearts and lives. There are some who are suffering greatly. There are some who are about to suffer. There are some who have suffered in the past, even decades ago, and struggle to understand your purposes. 
Lord, whether it be the past, the present, or the future, may we go to the Word of God for truth and perspective because perspective makes such a difference. Purpose makes such a difference. And you have outlined in your Word your perfect plan. All that we need to know is in these words of truth. God, help us to joyfully trust you. Defy what the world knows about suffering. Give us the grace to boast in our weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in us. Lord, these are lofty words, but you didn't intend for them just to ring in the heavens. Your intent was that they would change our marriages, our family situations, our finances, our view of our health, and all the other troubles that this world can throw at us. Lord, we are comforted in being reminded that you are the God of all comfort, the Father of mercies, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's why we trust you and worship you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.